Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. You're on Team Human, Conscious Intervention in the Machine. This is where we challenge the operating systems underlying our society and develop new strategies for promoting human autonomy, collective action, and the joy of living between the lines. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and I'm on Team Human. Playing for Team Human today, technology researcher and ethicist, Dr. Mary Gray. So as long as we have circumstances that are the long tail of most of our lives, where things are not tidy, then this technology means we're going to always need people. Mary will be showing us why human beings may be good for something other than training our algorithmic replacements. It's time to intervene on behalf of people. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you're on Team Human. We've got a special show for you today, two different looks at how to emphasize human values in our ever-increasingly complicated relationship with technology. First, in lieu of my weekly monologue, we're going to share with you a talk I gave a couple of weeks ago in New York at Betaworks Studios for a conference called Human After All, Humanistic Technology for a New Era. I've got mixed feelings about many of these humanistic technology efforts, which most of them seem to me less like doing anything for humans and more like finding ways to do the same old awful things to people, but a bit less painfully or obviously, so they don't resist so much. I mean, one of the speakers at this conference was Nair Eyal, the guy who wrote a book called Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products. That's basically the playbook for captive, addictive technology makers. And he was back, he was at this conference with another book, basically the antidote to his first one called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. 
And it felt to me like he was typical of these folks who are playing both sides of the arms race, telling marketers how to control us and then telling us how to resist the marketers. And of course, getting paid by everybody all along the way. And as you can tell, this kind of stuff pisses me off. So here's my talk. The first talk of that morning, which I was hoping was gentle and inviting enough to start a conversation with these folks about the inconsistencies in their approach. So first, let me say yay to this effort. Yay. It's a good idea. And the intention is profoundly positive. And I have been uh, making this argument since around 1993, when Wired Magazine came in and replaced our Mondo 2000 peer-to-peer cyberdelic cyberpunk humanistic culture with an extractive dot-com long-boom fiasco of human manipulation. <laughs> And many of us saw this coming. It was the only way this could go once we decided that the purpose of technology was to grow the NASDAQ stock exchange rather than grow human potential. So what I want to do in a spirit of love is challenge some of the underlying assumptions to what we're trying to do here and give us maybe some litmus tests to use throughout the course of the day, just ways of measuring, is this helping or hurting? Is this gonna work or not? Those of us who love technology, and I'm one of those people. I was a TV baby, I took things apart. I, I love technology. Those of us who love technology, especially those of us who have seen technology or digital technology solve wicked type problems, can't help but assume that the way to solve more problems is with more tech, or that the way to solve technology's problems is with more tech. Sometimes the tool that got us into the mess is not the same tool that can get us out of the mess. So I want us just to look at whether we are always assuming, oh, okay, now we're going to program this, we're going to add some code, we're going to hack the hack and, and somehow get back get back to, to zero or to happiness. The second main thing I want us to look at is whether the technology solutions that we're thinking of are also business plans dependent on exponential growth for their survival. In other words, are we saying, yes, this is a great technology solution, but it will only work if it generates a billion dollars of revenue in the first 18 months. The, the underlying values of extractive corporate capitalism are expressing themselves necessarily through our technology solutions. So let's start with the techno-solutionist bias that so many of us, including I, have. I want to trace it back to its origins, not as far as like, you know, Harari origins of the, you know, domestication of the human species, but um, we could certainly go back to say the origins of science, right, of sort of Francis Bacon style cause and effect science. Now, the initial urge of Francis Bacon, sort of the, the grandfather of what we consider science today, was to hold nature down by the hair and force her to submit to us. So the original metaphor for the scientific method was rape. 
And the reason it was rape is because science is being able to quantify things, right? And being able to assign numbers to things and cause and effect relationships. So the role of science is to find out what metrics can we assign to things. And if you can't assign a metric to something, it kind of doesn't exist, Right, so science, science's view of the ocean, the primitive science view of the ocean would be lat latitude and longitude lines. And sometimes if you just look at those grids, you kind of miss the waves that are happening inside. So then you could say, oh, we're going to use wave theory to figure out the waves, but then you miss the plankton. Oh, we'll use biological, but then we're going to miss the soul of the plankton. You know, we're going to keep missing stuff the more we quantify. When we take that quantification urge and move it into the digital realm, we end up not really quantifying everything, but quantizing everything, right? Which is sort of just an extension of that. But what we end up doing is seeing everything in terms of data. And if we haven't given a data point for it, it also ceases to exist. So when we say, and I, I love Nier's uh, uh, medium piece, but the argument of Nier's medium piece, which is that technology is neutral and it's up to us to decide whether to use captology for good or captology for evil, it doesn't question whether captology itself has a certain underlying value set. Right, so for me, the underlying value set of captology is that we can do technology to people. Right? We can subject people to technology to nudge them to be good or to nudge them to be bad, to nudge them to buy or to nudge them to not buy. And just as how you get nudged and what, what platform we make that will decide which way we nudge people. But I'm arguing that the nudging itself, that the, that the, the use of behavioral economics in digital platforms to influence human behavior is itself a value system. Now, you can agree with it or not. If you decide that people are evil, then don't do evil means don't let people do evil. Right? If you think that people maybe have these ways of expressing themselves that we don't know and there's some kind of soul thing that we want to let flourish, then maybe all the nudging might be, might be quieting something. So tech is not neutral. Right? Guns may not kill people. People kill people. But guns are more likely to kill people than pillows. Right? Even though pillows can be used for that purpose and have. <laughs> so the second main thread that I want us to make sure we stay aware of is that there is a market forces that are determining a lot of what, what we, uh, uh, the way we think. And the market forces are not neutral either. Right? When, I, when I study the, the emergence of the kinds of markets, the extractive markets we use today, I look at a transition of a burgeoning peer-to-peer -peer economy in the late Middle Ages at the marketplace where people were using uh, local monies and small businesses and exchanging and really they were optimizing their economy for the velocity of money and transaction and how that was forcibly shut down. Right, people were no longer allowed to issue their own monies. They had to borrow money from the central treasury at interest and pay it back, which was a way for wealthy people to get wealthy simply by being wealthy. Right? And they couldn't have their own businesses. They had to work for a chartered monopoly, so they became employees selling their time instead of their value. But we ended up with an economic operating system that demands growth, that has to grow in order to survive because you have to keep paying back more money than you borrowed. So we end up trying to run business and society on an essentially extractive operating system. I mean, the easy way for us to think about it is, as digital age people is what happens when eBay gives way to PayPal, 
right? When the predominant energy of eBay might be to help people trade stuff, and then when you realize the way we're going to make money is by extracting more and more from the transaction themselves with the PayPal. And look at how so many businesses go from being productive enterprises to becoming banks, whether it's General Electric deciding we make less money making a washing machine and selling it to someone than we do lending them the money to buy the washing machine, so we'll sell the washing machine business and go and become a bank. It's because they understand that the main function of the economy on which we're operating is to extract money through financialization. When that energy came to the indigenous people of America, when capitalism and colonialism came here, the Native Americans, they loved people so much, they couldn't understand why human beings would be conquistadors, why human beings would come and clear-cut forests and extract value from people and enslave people and kill them. And they so couldn't understand it that they didn't even think it was us that were evil. Right? They thought we had a disease. They called it wetico. Right? They, they must have this spiritual disease, wetico, that just makes them want to take and extract and kill. And they were hoping there was some way to, some way to heal us. Right? That's what colonialism really did. And colonialism worked as an operating system. Right? We were able to extract value from people and places right up until about the end of World War II when all those colonies started pushing back. I mean, you study post-colonial theory, but that's about the moment that India and Palestine and Africa, they said, hey, wait a minute, stop extracting all of our value. Native Americans couldn't do it because we killed them all, but people that were alive could. So at the end of World War II, Vannevar Bush, or Van Ever, I found out is how you say it, Van Ever Bush wrote this essay, as we may think, that most of us look at it because of the, you know, we're all excited about Memex and what he's talking about, the, sort of the invention of the computer. But what he was really doing was arguing to Eisenhower that all of the technologies that we developed in the war, all of this, you know, crypto and computing could be used in civilian society as a way of expanding the markets that we no longer had room to expand on. No, we can't take over other countries anymore, but there's new room for colonization. And that new landscape is a landscape of human attention. Right? Instead of colonizing brown people in other places, we can colonize ourselves. And there we're going to get more surface area for this market to grow. And that's how the computer and the internet ultimately became about the attention economy, about extraction. It's why Wired Magazine, they announced we're in the attention economy. And remember the great metric they came up with for the attention economy? Eyeball hours. Now think about that in terms of humane tech. Eyeball hours. And then what do we try to optimize our websites to do? To be sticky. Right, like flypaper to get people's eyes stuck so they spend more hours on our, on our tech. We colonized ourselves. So now the majority of the technology landscape has the figure and the ground reversed. Human beings are no longer the users of technology the way we were, say, in the industrial age. Now we are the used. We are not the message. We are the medium. Right? Human beings are the medium through which technology extracts value and delivers it to shareholders. You know, capitology is just an advanced form of capitalism. Right? And we all know what capitology really is. It's taking basically Las Vegas slot machine algorithms and embedding them in people's social media feeds in order to addict them. 
or it's the modification of human behavior, right? So we'll get them to, we'll reward them for checking their checkbook balance in Quicken, right? It's to do, you know, behavior modification through tech. I mean, and then we end up living in a world where our, our, our smartphone, we're no, you don't play your smartphone. Your smartphone plays you. Right? Every time you swipe your smartphone, it gets smarter about you and you get dumber about it. And if you want to get smart about it and deconstruct it and see what's going on, you'll find out the algorithms are protected in black boxes. They're proprietary. So you're not allowed to know. You're not, you're not allowed to know what it knows about you. You're not allowed to know what it's doing to you and you're not allowed to know why. Or you think about Facebook. What's the underlying... I mean, I don't know that this was Mark's fault... Right? Because, I mean, he didn't finish school, right? So what was he going to do? You know? I mean, look, what he, look at who he, he transferred parental authority onto, you know, uh, uh, Peter Thiel or something. What did you expect? Right? So what is, what, is the, what is the underlying function of Facebook? Right? It's to take a person's data, the data they leave behind, to put them in a statistical bucket, and then know with like 80% accuracy what they're going to do, and then make sure they go do it. Right, so if they know with 80% accuracy that I'm going to go on a diet in the next couple of months, my news feed's going to end up filled with, hey, Doug, you're looking kind of fat, or look at the way a fat cell moves through your uh, uh, bloodstream. Now, are they doing that to get me to buy a particular anti-fat product? No. They're doing that to get the 80% accuracy of their algorithm up to 90% or up to 95%. The way you do that is with captology and behavioral finance and manipulation and putting things in my newsfeed to get the 20% of people who are going to do something else, who are going to do a novel, human, strange, unpredictable behavior and get that 20% down to 10% or 5% because you want your population to be predictable because the more predictable they are, the more you can speculate on them. And the function of the internet is not to make people unpredictable, it's to get them to be more predictable so that the stock market knows where to put their money. Or you look at it as I do now, that what we're really trying to do is auto-tune human beings. I mean, to listen to auto-tuned music, imagine what that would do to James Brown. Right, James Brown reaching up to the note or coming down in over the note. Right, that's called soul. Right, we don't want soul. We want to quantize soul out of the picture. That soul, we know what digital systems consider that soul. They consider that noise. Where I consider that the signal. But you know how we make artificial intelligences look more human? How we make them look more real? We add randomness to it. Isn't that an interesting value system? The way to make a computer more human is make it more random. It's like that, the phrase junk DNA. Oh, we don't know what it is, so it must be nothing. You know, that's the fossil record. That's the history. That's all our failed experiments. That's stuff you're going to need once there's radioactive waste everywhere. I mean, those are the, that's the stuff you're going to need to retrieve. That's your soul. That's your past. That's your memory. And then it ends up becoming a feedback loop the more we use these technologies. When you engage with someone over Skype, right, you cannot establish rapport. You can't see if their pupils are getting larger or smaller as they take you in or disagree with you. You can't sync up your breathing with them. The 800,000 years of painfully evolved social mechanism for establishing rapport, for having your mirror neurons flash and the oxytocin go through your blood and you bond with the other person, those are not activated in digital spaces. And when 
you have a conversation with someone on Skype and they say, oh yes, I agree with you, I agree, that's a great idea, but your mirror neurons never flashed, your, the oxytocin never went through your blood, you end the call and your brain says they agreed with me, but your body says, I don't know. Your body just says, I don't trust that person, something was wrong. Right? And then the, the, the interesting thing about that is when you don't trust, when you don't get it, you don't get that oxytocin hit, that actually addicts you to the technology. You come back to it again and again and again. What makes us addicted to the technology is not the way it works. It's when it doesn't work. It doesn't quite fill it, so you come back for it. But what you're really doing is engaging in a feedback loop of distrust, where you start to see other people as the problem and technology as the solution, where don't be evil really becomes don't be human. And meanwhile, this same quantified extractive understanding of human beings informs our entire economic operating system. You know, so how do you both do good and make a billion dollars? I don't know that it's possible. You know, when I see, and I'm glad they're there, but when I see like the, the, the names like Airbnb signing on to Humane Tech, I'm like, dudes, it's too late. It's too late. You are structurally incapacitated from doing human good. Sorry. <laughs> you know, and I always hear, you know, someone comes up with some idea. It's like, well, what if I did my company like this? It's like, well, that won't scale. Or how are you going to feed all those employees? How are you going to uh, uh, give your shareholder value? You're not. You're not. When growth is the underlying operating system, it dictates the kinds of solutions we try to come up with. And I'm arguing that we can't both serve that and serve humans at the same time. Right? Money is using technology the same way that technology is using humans. But money, it's interesting, technology actually ate finance too. Right? Once they went digital, they ended up, it kind of backfired, right? The New York Stock Exchange in, what, 2013, it was purchased by its own derivatives exchange. <laughs> Do you understand what that means? Right? The stock market, which was already an abstraction of the market, which was an abstraction of the gift economy, was now consumed by its own abstraction. And it's like the Wall Street stock market guys, they're like the good guys now, right? Saying, well, wait a minute, these models don't really work. They're not connected to the real economy. I love it, right? But what we're really, the situation we're in is that money is still looking for more human activities to turn into markets. That's what capitalism does. You see some, there's some, you know, village in Africa where people are singing to each other. Oh, there's an opportunity. We can get them to buy music instead of sing for each other. Right? Oh, look at those friends giving each other advice. Oh, no, that's a market. They could be life coaches. <laughs> oh, look, kids are involved in imaginative play. Let's get them in Fortnite instead. Right? And then finally, what's the new, 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 new market? Tech addiction. Tech stupidity. So now we have a new market in wellness apps. We're going to market people's wellness back to them. The wellness that we took away. <laughs> wellness is an intrinsic right of being human it's not something you need to purchase or nudge yourself into <laughs> right and it feeds off our well-meaning but but uh, 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 techno-solutionist uh, mechanomorphism to use my friend Luke's favorite phrase 
Mechanomorphism is like, you remember um, anthropomorphism? It's where you, like, you put rabbit ears on your Mac Classic. It's like, oh, I love it. It's so human. That was at least a positive urge compared to mechanomorphism, which is seeing ourselves as computers. I can't process that. Right? I'm going to try to multitask. You know, and it's what leads us to think about phraseology like upscaling humans. It's a sense of using captology for good. But my fear is that what we'll end up doing is working to soften digital industrialism's effects rather than dealing with the core problem. That the idea is we're going to make our tech more humane in order to keep this extractive capitalism thing going. And even if Humane Technology Center doesn't mean that, I'm sure you don't, I get scared that the corporate sponsors coming in do mean that. And it's not even greenwashing. I don't mean it. It's, more, it's much more complicated than that. It's a little bit more like light cigarettes. Humane technology uh, rubs me a little the wrong way because when I saw humane technology, I thought of like cage-free chickens. You know, that you're going to treat them humanely all the way as long as you can still extract their data and slaughter them and do whatever you're going to do. So it's put, it makes me feel like I'm in the passive role. And maybe I am, but I'm just living on a technological landscape and we've got to make it as compatible as possible with my human processes. I'm much less interested in sort of allopathic medicine and antibiotics than I am in like homeopathy or increasing the vitality of the human organism. How do I increase my immune system, right? Rather than adding more nudges at me, I want to somehow enhance and reify my human intention, my human autonomy. You know, how do we be human? You know, humans are not compatible with exponential growth. Exponential growth does not occur in nature, except for very short periods of time, like cancer tumors. And exponential growth happens until it kills the host organism. Capitalism wants exponential growth. Digital technology gives capitalism a way of reaching exponential growth. As I see it, is digital technology exposes the essential flaw of extractive exponential digital capitalism. Digital is so much clearer than Marx because digital kind of does a Koyana Scotsy to markets, right? Where they go in sort of you know, time-elapsed footage and you can just see, oh, look. <laughs> They're sucking the life and energy out of the human species, out of the planet. We're all going to die. And when I make this argument in the most extreme tech circles, like somewhere like Google, they end up saying that human beings should simply pass the torch to our digital successors. Right? We should accept the inevitability of our extinction with grace and understand that this is information's evolution towards higher states of complexity. And I was on a panel with one of these guys, and I said, no, but human beings are special. We're weird. We're funky. We have liminal spaces. We can, we can contend with paradox. We can sustain ambiguity over long periods of time. We're not yes, no, one, zero. We're kind of in between and weird and squishy and strange. We can watch David Lynch movies and not understand them, but still decide they're, they're fun. <laughs> Human beings deserve a place in the future. And he said to me, oh, Rushkoff, you're just saying that because you're human. <laughs> As if it's some kind of hubris. And that's when I said, fine, I'm on team human. Guilty as charged. You know, I refuse to defend human beings' right to be here. And I know environmentalists will tell you, look, human beings fucked up the whole thing. But now we're doing it to ourselves. Right? The digital reifies our productive capability, our ability to create and exchange value. 
Right? The digital, if anything, it retrieves the medieval. Right? It retrieves that peer-to-peer marketplace. It retrieves women. It retrieves indigenous. It retrieves, it retrieves the local market. It retrieves burning man. It retrieves piercing and scarification. It retrieves the pagan. All that cool, weird stuff that we're sort of playing. Craft beers even, for God's sake. So you see the medieval coming, right? But use that, leverage that, take that. It was, a, it was the beginning of not the humanism of the Renaissance, which was about you know, uh, individualism and social control and central, central power. It's a different kind of humanism I'm looking at. You know, there is an intelligence to nature and to one another that is rendered inaccessible by digital technology. And that's okay. As long as we understand that, right? Quantifying the entirety of our reality, even with good intentions, will only cut us off from life itself. Okay, thanks. And now for our feature presentation, a discussion with digital researcher and ethicist Mary L. Gray. She's a Harvard Berkman Institute fellow, a researcher at Microsoft. Her latest book, written with Siddharth Suri, is called Ghost Work, How to Stop Silicon Valley from Building a New Global Underclass. She explores the lives of people who are paid to train artificial intelligence and increasingly serve as humans in the loop, delivering on-demand information services. Here's Mary L. Gray. As I read this, I start thinking about Queen Victoria and the Great Exhibition. And, you know, I wrote about it way back in Life, Inc., and I found out about it from Richard Barbrook, you know, who wrote these books on on the World's Fair, that the Industrial Age was not about making more stuff faster. It was about disappearing and disempowering the worker from the value they created. So the, the assembly line was so that you wouldn't have to hire a skilled shoemaker. You could go to the Home Depot parking lot, find someone, train them in 15 minutes to put one nail in, and, and be done with it. And be done with it and get rid of it. I mean, I, don't, I think that the challenge to me is that it was always both and. You know, I mean, at the end of the day, do I think maniacal actors were trying to, you know, were trying to reduce their labor costs as quickly as possible by getting rid of people as quickly as possible? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like that, I agree with that. At the same time, both that's an incomplete project. Like you can't, I mean, that's actually part of the argument of the book is to say there's this paradox that with everything we try and automate, we find ourselves with the problems that still require a human uh, touch, a human hand. Right. And with all of the energy spent, like how do I get rid of those people? It's an intractably hard technical problem to do that. And that we've never quite understood why. I'd argue this way of organizing the economy should be the answer to that why. Because you need people's creative engagement, their capacity to anticipate what we want, respond to what we want as humans, and to be able to apologize when we get it wrong. Like at the end of the day, that is what humans bring to everything they produce, everything they do. And I would argue that in our day-to-day lives, we still value that as people, as individuals, as cultures. The, The fear I have is that we'll get to the point where we don't value that moment of humanity. What's clear from the research we've done, workers don't stop caring about what they do. 
That was that. I think that's the part right. that we've always missed. Like for the most part, if you look at any of those historical studies of workers, they were still extracting value from what they did. What was diminishing, demeaning, was the lack of regard for their place on the assembly line. There's there's not a job we do where we don't create meaning, doing it. There's no shit job out there. So the people that are sitting, you know, identifying. Traffic lights in pictures for Uber's future AI. Right, right. They have, they care about what they're doing. Yeah, they they do, in the sense that they know that um, they're earning an income. They're earning some income. Yeah. That's the bigger problem. What kind of income is that? What kind of stability is it? And they often have motivations. There's a range of motivations in this mix. That are the ways that they make their work meaningful, and importantly, like when they're connecting with other workers, it is literally to be able to have that point of contact with somebody who says, "Nice job," or "How was your day today?" So, I mean, we there as you know, for every Marxist theory we have about the alienation of work, yeah. that's true, and what we've always needed is the complement to, and none of that alienation is complete. Unless we literally, as individuals, fully take that in, and that's the fascinating thing here is that for the most part, ask a person to care about their job or don't care about their job, they're going to come to that job and they are going to figure out what's meaningful about it and what are they going to ignore when somebody says, "I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm not really going to pay attention to that part of what you do. Or I'm not going to care about right. what you do." They'll go find somebody else or a different way of having that matter, like that. Was across all platforms, across all kinds of work, and importantly, this kind of work is not a niche job. It's not a matter of the robots are going to catch up anytime soon. Like most of what we studied was a world of work that's the iceberg, the below the surface. Like right now, we can see the Uber driver, the DoorDasher, the TaskRabbit, you know,、right. the Tasker, and look how people. Have now moved to rally the workers themselves, but people consuming those products and services to rally around those workers. It's because we can see them. Well, we know we're next. You know, like first they came for the Uber drivers. I said nothing. Yeah, <laughs> you know? no, I think that that is that that is hopefully the message of the book.、Right. Like the reality is, most of us are doing some form of information service work. The two of us are right now.、Mm -hmm. We can use that bland phrase or knowledge work, or you know. Information economies, all of that is effectively where a lot of our economy drives value, extracts value. We all value getting information, sharing information, having experiences through communication. Like that's this world of work. So take the example of content moderators, which is、right. two years ago, if either of us had said that phrase, most people wouldn't know what is that. Turns out it's people. Millions of people, not just thousands of people, millions of people who help social media companies take down material that's questionable that you and I flag as consumers, or to be able to look at live streams and figure out this is a hostile,、uh, horrific situation. It needs to be turned off so it's not live streamed anymore. Right. That the reason that takes people is because computers can't do that, and there's not a real yet in there. Precisely because being able to identify when is somebody using a, a word as、um, in a hateful way versus in a loving way. Right. Well, and also the scene, this the potential scenes of of human hostility 
are, are endless. endless you know? I mean, we, we, we're producing those twenty four seven. Right. So, no, I mean it is. It is. It's a job like hopefully journalism that's here to stay right. because we always have a world that needs reporting. We always have a world that needs facilitation. Like if we think of social media companies as this place where people are exchanging constantly. They're effectively the first responders, facilitating, mediating what is otherwise the soup of human exchange. And unless we want to all stop exchanging online, like our options are stop exchanging online, stop using social media, have more people trained to be able to do this work and make it sustainable, or continue as we are right now. The worst thing is pretending like technology is going to fix it. Because I think the biggest problem right now is people think they're right. technological. But when when Zuckerberg, you know, did his t testimony to Congress, he said, "Well, we'll develop AIs that figure this out. Just give us more time and money." And this is where you know all of this research is to show artificial intelligence takes a lot of human care and tending and curation. At the end of the day, like walking into Microsoft Research trying to understand, well, how does artificial intelligence work? Here's an, a good example, purple tie. If you do a search online for a purple tie, the only reason that you can algorithmically model here are all the purple ties is because a person at some point labeled enough of those images purple tie, right? The computers can't see the color purple. It's beyond the capacity of a computer. Not, it's not going to get there anytime soon because precisely seeing a color and interpreting it as this color, purple, is a, it's a sensorial experience that humans are uniquely designed. Really, they can just go to the closest of the 128 whatevers? They, they can, if you've got enough data. Thank you for all of the efforts to say, you shouldn't just get that data for free. I shouldn't get to just mine all of the places that you've posted a picture of your favorite purple tie. So, and importantly, as soon as we have, we have every bit of evidence that humans come up with new colors and new ways right. of creating, as long as we keep doing that with language, with um, visual representation, we'll need people right. to curate it. But the other way to go is, which it feels to me like what they're trying to do, is to iron out the human, the, the liminal. You know? And that goes from gender right through to, to the arts and to speech. Anything that they're auto tuning us. They are auto tuning us, and in some ways, we're letting ourselves be auto tuned. And I think the, that it's an empirical question: how many of us let that happen? So that, to me, is like that's what makes this an ethnographic question. Is right. we don't know for all of the efforts to make us go monotone, to stop looking up the word purple because that's too hard to find. Yeah. We have countless examples of whether people are intentionally throwing wrenches in the works and saying. I'm not going to use the gender labels that you give me. I'm going to come up with a new one. We have plenty of examples where, whether it's somebody by intention or literally just cross-cultural difference, they have a different interpretation of what counts as purple or what gender label is appropriate for them. That is going to constantly be throwing, um, again, a wrench in the works of technology, where it can't, it can't take care of anything other than that bulk normative section right. that's monotone, as long as humans want something other than monotone, we'll, we're okay. Right. We'll, we'll need people in the mix. Or something other, even if they, they give me all these other choices, it's still a snap to grid. So let's move into 
you know, the other places, this kind of technology of using application programming faces to hand a person the piece of the job that computation can't do. Right. That is exactly what we're talking about here. Right. From an Uber driver to a content moderator. Right, exactly. Where is the pizzeria on this block? Right. The computer can't find it. It can't find it. It can't get down your hallway when the lights are busted right. to get you your food. Right, so as long as we have circumstances that are the long tail of most of our lives, where things are not tidy, are not a snap grid, then this technology means we're going to always need people in this loop. And the question is, as we basically reorganize and arguably dismantle full-time employment that used to take care of these needs, right. what's the new world of work going to look like? It's not going to be robots doing everything. It's going to be people on contract doing tasks and projects. The national domestic workers. Yes. So, you know, so Palak Shah, I mean, you wrote yes, about her too. Yes. I had her on the show. Oh, awesome. You know, I mean, that, these are the, un, the, the or, or as David Zweig wrote about, the invisibles. But these, these are, are visibly invisible. And this, this is where it's like, what do we do about the large numbers of people who are invisible by design, hidden behind layers of APIs, so that we effectively as consumers feel that the internet is you know, moving along smoothly without a hiccup and that whatever it is we've requested is being delivered to our doorstep. Like that's the place, I think for right. the average consumer, they do want to know. Right, but these, these, these platforms are really good at externalizing the, the immediate yeah. human toll yeah. you know, on the worker, bringing your Grubhub to you or the restauranteur who's losing 40% of the of the lunch ticket now because he's paying a service fee, all the way to um, the people in Brazil where we're burying the toxic waste right. of the of the supposedly clean tech. I mean, the reality is until we have enough consumer advocacy to say I want this done differently as we did in textiles. So look at the Bangladesh Accord or any of the other cases where consumers with workers and with businesses that wanted to do differently and wanted regulation mm -hmm. to have everybody playing by the same rules, it took those movements to be able to make something like textiles in the case of the Bangladesh Accord, something where you would have an idea of who were all the people involved in producing the things that I, the clothing on my back. Like when consumers started caring about that, it put pressure on those companies and forced a degree of regulation that's always been something taken on by other countries than the United States. So the question is, will consumers in the United States see enough of themselves in this book to say, we should be worrying about what's going to happen to our jobs. We should be thinking, we should have all along been caring right. about the jobs that other people are doing that I imagine I'm not going to do myself. The reality, this is bringing home to roost what it looks like to have work turned into a set of contracts that are done job by job by job. Right. I mean, and the question I guess becomes, does it inspire people to become more mindful and aware of the entire supply chain. You know, as the Dalai Lama used to say, you know, when people asked him how to meditate, he'd say, one great meditation is right before you eat, think about where everything came from, how many people were involved in all that. Does it inspire that? Or does it inspire people to go, well, shoot, I better make sure I'm not one of them and become, you know, yeah. building. Better get into a good college. I'll be frank. I'm a pragmatist. I want. I, I don't care as long as I become <laughs> conscious. And I genuinely, right. it's like there're going to be people who are are motivated by. I had no idea there were people doing this. 
And so, you know, so this is telling to me, like when I first started doing this research, what made me um, consumed by this question of who are these people was asking platform builders, engineers, computer scientists, so who are the people who are doing these tasks to improve artificial intelligence? And I would get a range of responses. I'd get folks who would say, I don't really know. You know, I hadn't really thought about it. Or I don't have to know. This is great because I can call a person to pick up my task and I never have to think about interacting with them or directing them. They just do the work, hand it in, and I'm done. And then I met folks who were like, I am afraid to know because I'm afraid that they're working under conditions that I'm going to be deeply uncomfortable. Like, that's the space. To me, that's the, the movable middle. Right. The folks we can galvanize to say, when you find out, what would you like us to do next? What should we collectively be doing next? Because it, be, it can't be expecting businesses to self-regulate and do otherwise. It should be demanding, you have a new set of, of rules to play by. And, and nobody, for all the corporations, and this is really the bottom line of this book, all of these corporations now depend on a labor commons, a pool of people available 24-7. That is going to be true for every consumer who uses any of these services. Right. So how would we tend the commons? Like, it, it can't be, I mean, in the U.S. is so freakishly out of line with everyone else. It can't be, hope you had a good employer. If you have a good right. employer, you'll get some health care maybe. I mean, even that isn't statistically as true as it was, you know, 20 years ago. So we've got to shift to this place to say, how do we hold ourselves accountable and responsible to this pool, to this commons that needs to be nurtured, needs to be supported, not just because, and I like your point, like, not just because that will very much likely be us, if not our children, but also because I am enriched by tending that commons. Like I am, as a human, better when I'm paying attention to where did my services come from. Right, it's a, it's a richer experience of life, you know, as opposed to the other one, which is trying to put on as many blinders as you can to avoid seeing, I love my Tesla, don't tell me where the rare earth metals came from for the battery. I wanna believe I'm doing good for the environment. And I think for most people, we're catching a moment in time before somebody's really taken in, what's the impact of your actions in the world by what you buy, what you say, um, how you treat someone who's um, supported what you're doing. I mean, any, anybody, you know, if you ask them, like, did you accomplish everything you've written on your own? Like, if I asked you that, odds are pretty good. You'd be a jerk if you said, yeah, yeah I did everything entirely myself. Right? We know the truth of how many people make possible what we create. That is absolutely true for any, anything in information services. So when we reckon with that and we want to pass out our acknowledgments and our thank yous, what are the really tangible material um, pieces of support that are going to come with that? So it's not just like a hat tip. And as part of that, we've got a supply chain feeding what we do. How do we make sure it's well fed? The trick is, the as you, as you explain in the book too, is that these technologies seem biased toward obscuring all that participation and all that contribution. It looks as if, even people's Wikipedia page, as if it was just delivered by the browser. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's funny because I, I'm just circling back to thinking about what you said about you know the, the Zuckerberg hearings. And I think it is on every um, technologist 
to help educate the public. The general public should have an understanding of how does the information that shows up on a website get there? How do we end up not having everything we click on be half spam, half porn? Like, right. how does it happen? That happens because people <laughs> along the way have fine-tuned the information we're receiving. And so that technically, like, and, and hopefully the introduction of this book does that, understanding technically what is involved in creating what otherwise looks so clean and mm -hmm. simple and um, elegant, that's, that's, a, that's a, a mission right. for all of us. We have a moment of opportunity. Like the whole point of this book is to say, this is a moment where we can look at what it is we're at the very beginning of building, which is a world of contract work in which service industries are driven by, at least in part, sourcing, scheduling, managing, shipping, billing, what needs to be done through application programming interfaces that connect a person and computation. Mm -hmm. Like this is the world we're describing. We're just at the earliest days of building out what work looks like. It's not too late. And two of the companies that we studied, one of them is a nonprofit, amara.org. The other, Lead Genius, is a social enterprise. They both spent tons of energy figuring out how do we support workers here? How do we actually recognize them? Like for them, their value is having human intelligence collectively aggregated to help deliver a better service. They are so aware of the importance of the people in that loop. And for them, they've taken it as far as they can. What they need are the kinds of regulatory structures, a classification of employment that's going to serve the workforce that they are supporting. Because they, they can't do this as businesses competing against other businesses right. that effectively have been able to take advantage of the opening that our regulations in the 40s in the United States gave every business here to say, well, if you have contract workers, you don't have to care about them. Right. And that's where Esteban Kelly or Palak Shah or uh, Trevor Schultz and Nathan Schneider with platform cooperativism or all the stuff going on with the Inspiral people in New Zealand. I mean, there's a ton of really good examples of people saying, here's some alternative business models that put workers at the center. So it's, it's not for a lack of these business models. It's for the most part, the conditions, particularly in the United States, for most um, companies building out services and, and particularly information services, they rely on contract workers. They have since the, um, the settlement of the Permatemp case against Microsoft. Right. And the interpretation of that case where basically tech firms at, you know, who were the, in the thick of building out information services were turning to contractors because their, their products were constantly changing. To say, oh, I need a Belgian speaker today and I'm gonna need a Hungarian speaker tomorrow to be able to help me develop software that's gonna serve those two language groups, for example. So they became effectively the, the model for what does it look like to be able to hire somebody that's for a project, the project's gonna end, and then I need to move on to the next project. We had no labor law to effectively cover that. Right. And so settling that case and deciding, well, what we can do is have a world of contractors who are in most cases managed by a full-time employee or a full-time employer, it's a temp agency. They basically picked up the temp agency model built in the 60s 
and ran with it. But while my employment might be temporary, my my accessibility is always on. Exactly. No, and I mean this is the the reality. When people call this flexibility, it's a ridiculous way of thinking about the、um, the chaotic. You know the kaleidoscope that is moving from task to task.、Right. Whether you've done work for a year and a year and a half on a contract full time for a staffing agency, and now are being told end a contract. You knew that was coming. Hope you had something lined up. That is an incredible amount of pressure、yeah. to put on any individual, and not surprisingly, that's an incredible amount of effective pressure kept from kept on top of well, what's the pricing. If you can constantly move people around, you can never get wages to really stabilize and work to the advantage of a workforce, because you're constantly changing who's there to advocate for their rights, right? So again, this is, you know, this is perhaps a、um, a kind or a,、um, a generous read. I genuinely think this is the irony of what happens when you have a an approach to labor that prioritizes full-time employees, and. The move to rely on temp services went relatively unnoticed, except in certain domains or in places where those folks were never going to be considered, like domestic workers or agricultural workers. They were always fighting、right. this disenfranchisement, this marginalization, and we weren't listening. But hopefully, I mean, and and your book is is much more optimistic than.、Uh, Maybe we've been giving it credit. Not the way. Not the way it has to be. It's not the way it has to be. Thanks for joining Team Human. Our guest today was the author of Ghost Work, Mary L. Gray. You can find out more about her work at ghostwork.info. You can also find out more about her and all of our guests at teamhuman.fm, where you can also support this show. Every buck a month makes a big difference, and you can get all sorts of fun stuff by becoming a paying supporter of Team Human. Team Human is produced by Josh Chaplin and edited by Luke Robert Mason. I'm Douglas Rushkoff, and you've been on Team Human, our last best hope for peeps. Catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better. Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi.、Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.